Okay, if you haven't, uh, I noticed that they, uh, the uh, greeters have started greeting you with these out front. So if you don't have these, they're right there. Just, just walk up and down. Uh, it's okay. Don't make any noise, please, but just feel free to walk up and, and down. And turn now to chapter 18 of Genesis. Genesis chapter 18. Um, so um, in the Old Testament, we're in a series on the Old Testament, as you know. In the Old Testament, when God appears in human or angelic form, the theologians call that a theophany. Okay? A theophany. And this morning, I want to unpack one of the most mysterious uh, presentations of God to humans in all of the Old Testament. It happens with Abraham and Sarah. Now, at the time, excuse me, let's go back, when Sarah was 65 and Abraham was 75, God promised them a child. This promise was remarkable, both because of their age and because Sarah had never been able to conceive, even in her younger age. So, 11 years later, they lost sight of God's promise. So they took things into their own hands. Sarah took, so remember the names, Sarah, Abraham, husband and wife. Sarah took Hagar, her maidservant, which was not against the law back then. This kind of stuff happened all the time. Remember, it's 500 years before Moses. The law hasn't come. It's part of their culture. It wasn't even weird. It was faithless, <laughs> but it wasn't weird. Okay, and so Hagar uh, goes in with Abraham, she conceives and she has a child for Sarah and Abraham, Ishmael, okay? So let's pick up the story nearly a quarter of a century later in Genesis 18. Um, Here's the original promise, now we're all the way 24 years later, Ishmael is 12, Sarah is 89, and Abraham is 99, and now... A most remarkable event occurs. Look at this. Now the Lord appeared to him. Who appeared? Right. The Lord appeared to him by the yokes of Mamre, and while he was sitting at the tent, he's Abraham, at the tent door at the heat of the day, and when he lifted his eyes, he looked, and behold, three men were standing opposite him. Come back to that in a minute. And when he saw them, he ran... uh, from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, my Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree and I will bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves. After that, you can go on since you have visited your servant and they said, so do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah, said quickly, Prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it, and make bread cakes. Abraham also ran to his herd and took a tender and choice calf and gave it to the servant, and he hurried to prepare it. And he took curds and milk and the calf with which he had prepared, placed it before them, the three men, and he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. And they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? Now, by the way, it should have been a real strong clue here. Um, how in the world did they know the name of the woman in the tent that they couldn't even see? Um, where is Sarah, your wife? Let's see if I can find where I was. And he said, behold, in the tent, and he said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. And Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I have become old, shall I have pleasure? My Lord being old also. You can almost hear the Hebrew version of what the word geezer must have been. All right? Um, Look at that guy, God. I mean, are you kidding me? Um, So, uh, is anything to, uh, excuse me, verse 13. And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you. At this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. Now, we don't have much time to go into it, but suffice it to say that this 
most scholars believe, and, and there's all kinds of reason in here, that this is a picture of the triune nature of God, right? He presented himself here as three persons. Remember, the text says the Lord appeared to Abraham, and he looks up, and what does he see? Three guys. Very interesting. The Lord appeared, and these guys know things like the name of the woman whom they've never met in a tent that they can't see, okay? So uh, really, really remarkable. Uh, and the text says, notice this, my Lord is what, not Lord's, but my Lord is what Abraham says back to these. But even more powerful is if you'll notice in verse 13 and 14, this is really remarkable, the Hebrew for Lord there that's used is not the, are not the generic Hebrew terms of Elohim or Adonai, but the personal name of the one true God, Yahweh. So notice, he's talking to three guys and using the name of the one God. A remarkable um, pre-faith, if you will, on the part of Abraham. Um, so this is a clear picture of the Trinity, God presenting himself in three persons. So Abraham and Sarah, they got to experience this spectacular event. God's talking to them. One of the few theophanies in all of the, world, uh, of the Old Testament, right? But, but one of the surprising aspects of the story is that as striking as it was, Sarah doubted the message from the beginning. So here are th Sarah's three major doubts, or three major doubts, and here's your, where your notes start. Get your pen and pencil out. Here we go. Doubt number one, she doubted God's power. She just simply didn't believe that God had the ability to come through on his promise. Doubt number two, she doubted God's goodness. Now think of her life experience. She was at a time where the word barren, there's a specific name in the Hebrew, and that was considered a curse on a, on a woman to not be able to conceive and have children. So she wasn't sure that God cared about her at all. So when she heard God's promise, she was incredulous. She laughed out loud. And doubt number three, she doubted God's plan. So as I said before, this wasn't the first time that they'd heard God's promise to give them a child, right? Twice in the last 24 years before this, they had heard God's promise. But Sarah had tired of waiting for God, and so her impatience led her on her own plan. So I want you to notice this. She doubted God's power, his goodness, and his plan. And this essentially sums up all of the great doubts that anyone will ever have about God. Either he's, either he's not powerful, he may be good, but he's not powerful enough, just look around. Or he's powerful, but he's not good. Just look around. And, or, I don't trust his plan. So this foundational passage for understanding what the word teaches about questions and doubts. Since everyone that's ever walked seriously with God, and this is a good test for you, if you have never seriously doubted, then you have never seriously walked with God. You know, God... If you believe in God because you never think, God's not impressed. Do you realize how easy it is for someone who's intelligent to just come blow your faith over if you've never thought? If you've never wrestled with anything? And do you realize how useless, useless you are to the one who is doubting to be able to say, you know, I've been exactly where you are, and let's walk, walk and work through this together. So from this amazing passage, I think we get five key concepts about doubt. Number one, here's your blanks. Some doubts are very reasonable. So think about this. Sarah's doubts were completely logical, right? I mean, don't be down. What would you think? Um, <laughs> when these three guys show up, they announce that she's having a baby in a year. It was outrageous. This is really easy to rationally sum up like this. Abraham's too old to father a child. Sarah's too old to conceive. Her statements about the biological impossibilities were absolutely true. <laughs> After all, you know what? 100-year-old guys don't get to push baby buggies. It just doesn't happen. So Sarah's questions were eminently reasonable. Key concept number two. In biblical faith, being honest about your doubts isn't just allowed. Listen to this. In biblical faith, honest doubts aren't just allowed 
it's encouraged. This is strange. Now think about this. This is, biblical faith is almost unique in the world religions this way. In nearly all other religions, you don't question the avatar or the prophet, the yogi, the shokar, the maharishi. You do not question Muhammad. You don't question the founder of the faith. They speak for God or the gods, and their words are not to be questioned. But Christianity is completely different. That's one of the great things about our God. You see, he isn't the least bit put off by honest questions. He encourages us to question precepts, to question teachers, to pull and tug and interact in our search for truth. So, we see this illustrated in Jesus' amazing response to Thomas. Look at this. Here's the text in John 20. But Thomas, but Thomas, one of the 12 called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came So other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. And he said to them, unless I see his hands, the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side where the sword went, right, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, now you know, most of the time when I teach, I I'm not rewriting the Bible. I'm just saying what the next verses should say, okay? Um, So here's the uh, Spade International Version. Look at this. Here's Jesus' response. Thomas, is it up there? Yeah. Who do you think you are questioning me? Your God, your Lord, your Savior, your Messiah. No one has the right to question me. No one has any business ever having any doubts. Get your head straight and don't ever ask me another question. Thomas had already seen him raise the dead. He had no business having questions. Oh, but look at Jesus' actual response. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst, and he said, peace with, be with you, and look who he talks to first. Then he said to Thomas, reach here your finger and see my hands, and reach your, your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Watch this. When honest questions are asked by people of our God, he doesn't give us what what we deserve. He gives us more evidence. We got to be willing to receive it. And we are often tainted by our own self-interest, right? But if you just look at objectively, if your question's real and it's honest and you're willing to receive what he says, he will always bring more evidence by a host of ways. So why is there so much freedom to ask questions in biblical faith? Why wasn't God put off by Thomas's doubt, by somebody saying, I will not believe? Why wasn't he put off by Sarah's doubts? Anyone else's doubts, the simple answer is this, because he's the real thing. You see, he has nothing to hide. He can stand up to scrutiny. He's not insecure. So the very fact that God is who he says he is is the reason why there's not a single honest doubt that has ever bothered him. Look what emerges from this morning's text. Look at verse 12 again. And Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And look at verse 15. Sarah denied it, however, and she said, I did not laugh for she was afraid. And she said, no, but, he said, no, but you did laugh. Notice this. This was God's invitation for her to join in a conversation about her doubts. This is the three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in pre-incarnate form. We don't get it. How did this happen? But they're showing up in triplicate to say, your God, the one God in three persons is here. Sarah, let's talk. And you know what is amazing? Instead of taking the opportunity, she moved away and she isolated herself from his wisdom. Sarah, listen to the text again. Sarah laughed to herself. So because of her questions, look what she did. She backed away from hearing his word. She receded into her own little world where she only had the input from guess who? Herself. There wasn't even social media to mess her up then, right? All she had was herself. 
her thoughts, her limited view, no conversation, no interaction, no discussion, just Sarah living alone with her questions. So what do we learn from this story? We learn what not to do, right? When you have doubts, God has a plan to reveal himself. Jesus has a plan to let you put your hands into his side. But you won't find the answers in yourself or your wisdom. No one on the planet is smart enough or wise enough to figure out the answers to the big questions on our own. None of us have that kind of intelligence. So, the answers are found in his word, worked out in conversation with godly people who have wisdom and know his ways. So think about this. When you have doubts, the worst thing you can do is isolate yourself from the very places and relationships and conversations where the real answers can be found. Don't hide inside the tent talking to yourself. More on that in a minute. And before we move on, I want to take just a moment to talk about God's sovereignty. We don't have time for a, a, a full apologetic. In fact, until eternity, we won't see the full apologetic of his incredible omnipotence. But the fact is, his unlimited power is evident in the way he created the universe. The universe is a great apologetic for who he is, what he's like, and his existence. That's exactly what Romans chapter 1 says. Look at this, Romans 1.20. For since the creation of the world, his, God's, invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been, look at this, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. In other words, all you have to do to get a hint of the majesty and power of God is to look through a telescope. Let me give an example. Our galaxy, so we have the sun, the solar system, either nine or ten planets, depending upon who you listen to, okay? And we're within, the sun's the closest star, but we're within a galaxy, the Milky Way, that has about 100 million stars in it, okay? And it turns out that it's um, pretty mediocre. Uh, we, we have a picture, no, go back. Um, uh, by the way, I've always wondered who took this picture. Um, so... Um, some of you will get that tomorrow. Um, so, okay, this is a real key. This is a, an average-sized galaxy. There are galaxies that are a million times larger than our galaxy. Average-sized galaxy, okay, you ready? And here's how many miles across our galaxy is. Um, a few zeros there. So this is 70 quadrillion miles across our galaxy. Now, let me try to put this into perspective. When you're traveling... Uh, when, you, when you break the sound barrier, you're traveling at what's called Mach 1, okay, at 768 miles an hour. If you want to get out of the pull, the gravitational pull of the Earth, you have to go Mach 33, 25,000 miles an hour. That's how you can go out into deep space. That's how you can go to Mars, for instance, okay? So, um, Here's what is absolutely remarkable. If you are traveling in a spacecraft at that speed, you will cover 219 million miles in a year. That's a long way. And do you know in that spacecraft how long it will take you to get across our average size, mediocre one galaxy at that speed? 320 million years. And if you take a universe picture, and you look at the galaxies, there are a hundred million galaxies. And the space in between the galaxies dwarfs the size of the space of the galaxies themselves. And think about it, with a word, he spoke it into existence. Modern astrophysics has revealed the awesome majesty of the creator. Science has put to bed any reasonable argument against the infinite power of the first cause. Think about it. It began with infinite energy, near infinite amount of mass, and even time itself all created from nothing. No wonder he isn't insecure. <laughs> the truths about God are true even when no one ever believes him, right? His reality isn't contingent upon what we think. His reality isn't threatened by our questions. The creator God exists independent of what anyone thinks about him. So this is why Yahweh, the God of Abraham, encourages real questions. Key concept number three, 
If you make major decisions based upon your doubts, this is important, if you make major life decisions based upon your doubts, you and others will pay a very high price. As we've seen, God isn't trying to get rid of our reasonable doubts. He encourages us to work through the questions. Uh, But doubt also has risks. Because of this, we're going to focus on, here's the risky interaction between doubt and choices. Okay, you ready? Here's your blanks. Having doubts is not a problem. But we create a big problem when we make decisions based upon our doubts. In Genesis 18, we've seen how this played out in Sarah's life, right? The fact that she had doubts about God wasn't the issue. The problem was that she vastly underestimated the impact of making decisions based upon her doubt, right? And so when she chose to take things into her own hand, and in the midst of the doubt about God's plan, she stepped out of God's plan and did the Hagar-Ishmael thing to get her own son in her way, she had no idea how costly it was going to be. But for the moment, let us lay aside what happens, and we'll see a bit of the pain in Hagar's and Ishmael's life that comes from this. But but, um, this doesn't even compare to the consequences that the world has experienced through the ages. Think about this. Ishmael is the father of the Arab nations. Isaac, the father of Israel. Jacob and Israel, the nation. Think about how much hatred has occurred for four millennia because Sarah made decisions based upon her doubt. It is impossible to calculate the consequence of what's happened. So if you're living with uh, doubt, Put your big decisions on hold. If you're living with doubt, you have one priority in life. Seek the answer to your questions. Don't make big decisions. Don't make relationship decisions. Don't make decisions, big decisions, especially from your doubt. Make priority number one, Lord, will you answer my questions? Key concept number four. The longer you allow doubts to impact your decisions, listen, the longer you allow doubts to impact your decisions, the harder it gets to hear God's voice. Look at verse 10 with me again. And he said, I will surely return to you at this time next year, and behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing and Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I have come, become so old, shall I now have pleasure, my Lord being old also? Think what has happened to her over the years. She's become increasingly incredulous about God's promise. Why? Because she lived for years by her own wisdom and following her own plan. Because of this, the voice of God became less and less audible. And so when God actually showed up in person, she couldn't believe him. Wow. So look what had happened. All that's left is a sarcastic laugh. She had a God who had gone from Lord to question to an annoyance to irrelevant in her life. Listen to the pattern. He had gone from Lord to a question to an annoyance to irrelevant. And so, unless we stop this progression, this is ultimately what happens when we begin to live life as if he is not powerful, good, and have a great plan for us. So God's clear voice, his good plans for us, his counsel that will keep us from ruining our eyes, our lives, excuse me, becomes softer and softer over time. And ultimately, what we see is our thoughts, our plans, our needs, our desires, our perspective, our way. And you know what? That is a perfect formula for destroying your life. If you don't return to him, his voice just becomes vague. Key concept number five, five. If you make major life decisions in the midst of your doubts, Here we go. If you make major life decisions in the midst of your doubts, you're at high risk 
for becoming someone you never wanted to be. Now let's look a year after the theophany, right? Timeline, when they're 65 and 75, they get the first promise of Isaac. They biff that 12 years later. They have their own plan. They do the Hagar-Ishmael thing. They have this pretend son. Oh, we'll help God, right? I mean, there's all kinds of, God's people for a long time have, have figured out ways to, to disobey him, right? Uh, and to make it sound godly. Uh, that's what they did. Okay, and then at year 24, God shows up himself in Sarah's face. She doesn't believe it. Uh, now it's a year later, and this is remarkable. She has now gotten exactly what she desperately hoped for. God comes through, and she has a son. Look at verse 1 in chapter 21. So turn over a couple of chapters. Verse 1, chapter 21. Then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said, and the Lord said, uh, did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken. And by the way, some of you know that in the Greek uh, and in the Hebrew, there's, there, there is this um, phrase that's often used, the fullness of time, the fullness of time. Maybe sometime we'll talk about how, how could God let from Malachi to Jesus be 400 years? Did he not care about four centuries of people lost without the gospel? I mean, why the silence? And so God talks, so that all the time, this fullness of time. And I just want you to know, God always goes in the fullness of time. He will never go at any other pace, and it drives me crazy. So, I won't ask for witnesses, but I suspect it's happened to you too. So look at this now. Verse 5. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. I don't know about you, but that gives me chest pain. It was hard enough to be a father when I was 26. Holy cow. Centigenarian having a baby. Okay, so think about this. God was absolutely faithful to Sarah. He comes through big time. He's fulfilled his promise. And so it's time to party. It's time to celebrate. It's time to have a feast. And in fact, look at this. Chapter uh, 21, verse 6, the next verse. And Sarah said, God made, has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And he said, and she said, who would have said to Abraham that, that Abraham and Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. There's the geezer again. Verse 8, and the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Okay, so now this is really remarkable, okay? Um, it, it, now comes a big surprise, a, a, just a gigantic surprise. Something totally expected happens. In the midst of this incredible miracle, who could possibly dampen Sarah's joy? She has Isaac now. How could anything get in the way of this historic celebration? Is there anything that could distract her on the greatest day of her life? And the answer is, absolutely. Look at verse 9. Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, right? Ishmael. The, that other son. That Sarah's idea son. Um, now Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking. Therefore, she said to Abraham, drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son, Isaac. Oh my goodness. This is one of the saddest stories in all of the Bible. Even though God came through with exactly what Sarah hoped for, something had changed inside of her. When she began to live life based upon her doubts, she started down a road that ultimately made her into a person that she would never have ever wanted to be. Look at this. The results of Sarah living her life based upon her doubts. Here's result number one. Here's your blank. Even though God perfectly fulfilled his promise, she had become an ungrateful angry, self-centered person. A ungrateful, angry, self-centered person. You know what's amazing? You can doubt and still be grateful. 
You, you can live with real, honest doubt. You can ask real questions. How could it be true? How could God be good and all-powerful and there be so much evil in the world and suffering? How can it be true? How can he let things happen like he lets happen? You can have those and you can still be grateful for your next breath and for all that he has done. But notice what happened. When you live long enough making your decisions based upon that God is not powerful enough and not good enough and doesn't care enough to have a good plan for me, you don't just make choices, you actually become a different person. Oh my, this is high stakes, folks. So, think about this. Sarah was mad at Ishmael and Hagar. Had she lost her mind? Look at this. Look at the facts about the situation. Fact number one, here's your blank. Fact number one, (laughs) Ishmael wasn't Hagar's idea. He was Sarah's idea. And yet Sarah is tossing out Hagar because of Ishmael. You know, the irony could not be more magnificent, could it? And then fact number two, you may remember this when I preached in June on a different part of this story. Um, we, we, We brushed on this. Look at this. Sarah forgot that she had stolen Hagar's opportunity to have a real husband. Think about this. When Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham, she was forever after considered Abraham's wife, even though Abraham wasn't being a husband to her. Her opportunity to have her own family had gone away forever because of Sarah and Abraham's decision. But this was of no concern to Sarah. She'd become so self-absorbed that when God's promises were fulfilled and he gave Sarah her own son, guess what she did? She quickly discarded Hagar and Ishmael because they were no longer useful to her. She had become who she never would have wanted to be. So let's apply. Oh, you know what? Did I miss result number two? Oh my, the melancholies would have a stroke if I missed the blanks. Okay, here we go. Um, uh, Notice, result number two of living her life based on her doubts. Remember, it's not because she had doubts. It's because she made big decisions based upon her doubts without resolving the doubts before she heard the plan from God, okay? Um, Even when she, here's your blank, even when she finally got exactly what she yearned for, think of it, she got exactly what she yearned for, not even a miracle could give her joy. Wow. The very thing she hoped for, the very thing she dreamed of became empty. Going on her own had ultimately changed her. She was no longer capable of finding joy or fulfillment even when Isaac was a reality in her life. So let's apply. Application number one. Application number one. What you do during times of doubting can create incredible risks, right? It can create incredible risks, but here's the great news. It can also create incredible victories. See, Sarah has shown us the disaster that happens when a person begins to make decisions upon their doubts and questions rather than based upon the faithfulness of God and his word. But now let's look at the ultimate contrast. When God doubted himself, think about this. It occurred in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's astonishing to think about what happened there. There was Jesus, completely innocent, a true victim of others' wrongdoing, facing the greatest suffering and unfairness that anyone would ever face, and worse yet, because of our sin, God turned his back on him and he abandoned Jesus. Think about this. I don't know about you, but one of the greatest promises in the Bible that I've stood on throughout life has been, Dan, you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be good. You don't have to be anything. If you'll just trust me and follow me, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Do you know there's one human being in history that that promise he could not claim? Jesus is the only human that ever lived that the Father didn't give that promise to. The Father turned his back on him. And the Trinity, for the only time in eternity, was separated. 
Jesus bore that incredible abandonment by the Father. Notice, and in the midst of this suffering and doubt, he cried out, my God, my God, why? (laughs) I don't know about you, but it really helps me to know that God asked God, why? There's not a single question that the Father is ever afraid of, not even the Son saying, why, Father? This is not fair. This is not right. And I don't want to do it. That's exactly what he said. Father, if there's any way, I want out. Oh, my See, Jesus was asking the Father to release him from the cross. Do we realize what was at stake here? Do you realize that the risk coming from Jesus' doubt was for all humanity, including you and me, this was the most precarious moment in the history of the universe? In this moment of doubt, the very salvation of the world was at risk. Everything hung in the balance. (laughs) But this also placed Jesus in the position, you ready? This also placed Jesus in the position that by an act of his will, he could claim the greatest victory in all of history. And in the midst of all his doubt, Jesus uttered the three words that are literally our salvation, not my will. With the greatest doubts any human had ever had, the greatest unfairness any human had ever had, and Jesus was able to break through all of the questions and say, I'm not going to make a big decision in the midst of suffering and in the midst of doubt. I'm going to trust my Father and I'm going to say, not my will. Let me tell you something. Today, if you're in the midst of doubt, if you will say, not my will, it is awesome in its power. It changes everything. It's Amazing what will happen. Look at this. So Gethsemane, here's your blank. Jesus gives us the key in the midst of doubt. Jesus obeyed even though he didn't understand. Oh my, that convicts me. Because you know, that one decision is my only hope. So what about us? Some of us are waiting for a day when all our questions will be answered. We're waiting for all the doubts to be gone. We're waiting for all the big whys to go away, right? But don't miss the fact that our decisions in the times like this will determine whether we experience the tragedy of living like Sarah and maybe even becoming like Sarah or we experience the incredible victory of living like Christ. So let me ask you some questions. Are you willing to follow when you don't know? Will you surrender even when you are asking why? Will you, like Jesus, obey when you don't understand? If we will, we'll experience victories we can't imagine, and God will perform the amazing miracle of helping take our eyes off of ourselves and to put our eyes on a lost world that he needs us to help him save. Application number two. Who we ultimately become is determined. This is really remarkable. The song that we sang this morning is just perfect for this. Who we ultimately become is determined far more more by what we do in the valleys, listen church, than what we do on the mountaintops. This is a remarkable biblical precept. This, This blows my mind. When we have serious doubts, there's something else that often goes with it, right? We tend to grow distant from God, and our relationship with him can grow stale, and our devotional life may become dry or even non-existent. But there's an interesting twist, one that doesn't make sense on the surface at all. God plays a bad trick on us. It turns out, you ready for this, that he intentionally allows every believer to go through times when he feels distant. Why? If you can speak a hundred billion trillion stars into existence, why not just make yourself apparent all the time? Just like, whoa, there he is again. Okay, I'll do the right thing. (laughs) Right? I mean, why? Why? Why does he allow us to have times when we don't sense his presence and he doesn't feel close? Hmm. Why didn't he pull a theophany all the time? 
He doesn't do this to punish us. He doesn't do it to make us suffer. You ready? (laughs) You know why he does? You know why he withdraws the feeling of his presence from us? Because he thinks so highly of us. Do you know why he withdraws himself and allows us to have times that are tough? Because he's made us for greatness. Now listen, he does it because we need to be willing to follow his ways and obey his word and live like Christ regardless of how we feel. If, we, if he didn't allow us to experience this, think about this, we would become people who only follow him when times are good and when everything seems to fit together and when life is easy. But he can never save a lost world with wimps like that. He's looking for warriors who have become powerful because they said, not my will, when they didn't feel like it. The only way you ever win a war. Why does he allow this? Because untested faith, folks, isn't worth having. If your testimony is, I just feel good and feel good all the time and God's made me healthy and wealthy and so I believe in him, you have nothing for anybody except those who are healthy and wealthy all the time. God can't use people who only obey when it's well, everything is well, everything makes sense. The world is far too desperate for God to have children who will only follow him when things are easy and the answers are all in and when his will sounds good to us. So here's the twist. Across the entire lifespan of a believer, the tough times, you ready? The tough times, listen, if you're in trouble today, if you're hurting today, if you're suffering today, if you're doubting today, you ready for this? The scriptural concept is the tough times are actually the most important times of your life. Look at the application again. Who we ultimately become is determined far more by what we do in the valleys than what we do on the mountaintops. This is masterfully illustrated in the screw tape letters. Let me set it up for those of you who haven't read screw tape. Um, I keep being mystified that I have, haven't taken a lot longer than I have, but I promise I won't add. Um, so screw tape is, um, is, 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 screw tape is, a, is a senior tempter demon, right? So you're down, you're down here in, in Hades with, uh, and there's this big structure and screw tape is the uncle of the junior tempter Wormwood. And the screw tape letters are, we don't get to see Wormwood's letters that, we, that, that screw tape talks about. We don't get to see the junior tempter's letters that are, are written to screw tape, but we get to see screw tape's letters to Wormwood, instructing him. And his first big charge as a, as a baby demon is, he's been given this new Christian. And his, he's supposed to tempt him away from the faith. Okay, so that's what Wormwood's whole focus is now. He says one guy on this list just became a Christian. It turns out we're about six weeks in to his conversion and screw tape sending Wormwood to mess him up, okay? So about six weeks in, what's, Wormwood has clearly written a letter saying, this is great. Six weeks ago, I thought this was horrible. The guy's gonna do anything God asks. The guy's on cloud nine. He's telling everybody about Jesus. Um, but now he's gone into a trough. He's gone into a trough. We've got him, screw tape, okay? That's what's inferred. Now listen to screw tape's incredible insight to Wormwood. Wormwood, this is where the troughs come in. You must have wondered often why the enemy, remember in this, the enemy is God, right? Because this is the demon's writing. You've often wondered why, is this up here? Good. Uh, The enemy doesn't make more use of his power to be obviously present to human souls all the time. It turns out that when he does a little overriding of their senses at the beginning, he does this when they come first to know him. He will set them off with communications of his presence which, though faint, seem very great to them with emotional sweetness. This helps them have easy conquest over temptation at first. But he never allows this state of affairs to last long. Look at, sooner or later he withdraws from their conscious experience all the initial supports and incentives. He leaves the creature to stand up on his own legs to carry out from the will alone duties that have lost all relish and joy. 
It is during such trough periods, listen, much more than during the peak periods that the creatures are growing into the sort of persons that he wants them to be. Therefore, the prayers offered in a state of dryness are those which please him most. Isn't that great? If your prayer life is dry, he's the most pleased that you're praying. He wants them to learn to walk, and therefore he must take away his hand. And if only the will to walk is really there, he is pleased, even with their stumbles. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring to do the enemy's will, but still intending to do it, looks around upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished, and even asks why he has been forsaken, and then he still obeys. Don't be deceived, Wormwood. That's when we're in the biggest trouble. This morning, I suspect there are many here who have questions have doubts, who've been wondering if God is really who he says he is, just like Sarah. And maybe these questions have been so troubling that you've even begun to wonder whether following the Lord is really worth it. Listen carefully. This means that you're at a time in life when you'll most determine the kind of person you're going to become. And here's what's remarkable. If you're as low as you've ever been, And even if you're actually wondering if he's really there, now is the time when you are able to make the greatest blows to the enemy. What an irony. At the lowest point is when we can ruin the enemy's plans with the greatest power. Pastor Josiah, come on up. In a congregation of this size, I'm sure there are some here going through a season of doubt. Some of you may have intellectual doubts, right? struggling with who God is or maybe even if he exists at all. Others may be going through a really tough time and you may with Jesus be saying, why? Why have you abandoned me, Lord? Just like Jesus. You may be wondering where God is in all of this and there are undoubtedly some here who don't even believe yet. If any of these descriptions are where you are, we've learned from the word this morning there are two things that are true about your situation. The first is, now's the time when you can make the most destructive decisions you'll ever make. It's a time of great peril, and your choices can lead to untold suffering that you cannot possibly predict. It's a time when you can begin to make yourself into the kind of person that you never would have wanted to be. But it's also a time when you can establish the foundation for the greatest joys and the greatest impact, and the greatest world change, and the greatest victories that you'll ever know. Look again at the words of Screwtape. It's on the screen. It is during such trough periods, much more than during the peak periods that the creatures are growing into the sort of person he wants them to be. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring to do our enemy's will, but still intending to do it, looks around upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and even asks why he has been forsaken. And then he still obeys. For those of you who are here and are living in the midst of doubt, there are some steps that you need to take to get through this time. First, you may want to jot these down. These aren't in your notes, but you may want to jot these down. First, spend time with a believing friend. Find somebody that you trust, somebody who loves you. Don't don't go find the lunatic friend who isn't for you, right, as the gift of discouragement. Find somebody who loves you and is ready to hear all of your horrible doubts, the terrible things you think about God. God already knows what you think. Find somebody who will walk that with you. It's a really important thing. Second, don't miss a single Sunday experiencing worship with the body of Christ together. Now, for a moment, everybody just look around at everybody. Come on, wake up. Just look around, not anybody specific, especially not the person right next to you because of what I'm going to say now. Now, I realize there are definitely some bozos here, right? Um, a A few, all right? But most of the people around you, you have no idea what they've suffered. 
You have no idea the doubts that they've lived through. And as you look at their faith now, and the way they give themselves for other people, and the way they, they care about children and are willing to miss the fun, when you look around, you have no idea how close to where you are a bunch of people around you are, have been in the past, and they have found that the Father is always faithful. You know what? When you miss that, you're missing input from people who have had some of the most horrendous things ever happen to them and who today live with a faithful God with great confidence and gratefulness. Don't miss a Sunday. Third, you should always be reading scripture. Listen, church, you should always be reading scripture. You don't even have an excuse with you because you don't have a phone with you. You have your Bible with you all the time, right? Instead of complaining about how long the line is, read the word. Read the word all the time. Read it everywhere you go. Consume yourself with scripture. Listen, in this day, we are saturated saturated with ideas and philosophies and information, right? Completely saturated. Saturate your mind with the Word of God or you will be saturated with something that you don't want. Fourth, your notes have a list of incredible books at the bottom. If you didn't get notes and you want these, I, I listed four incredible books that will build your faith the Reason for God by Timothy Keller, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, multiple others. Be reading. If you're in doubt, be reading. Super easy to get nowadays. Less than five bucks, you can get them, okay? And then fifth, on September 15th, we're launching a discipleship classes on Sunday mornings at 9.15. Pastor Kurt mentioned, I think, a couple weeks ago this. Um, and notice, this is going to have three tracks. One will be alpha. It's perfect for pre-believers and new believers and young believers. It's exactly for unpacking things like your questions. Then there's uncommon, which is an incredible infusion of passion and faith for someone who really wants to go all in for God. Pastor Kurt will be teaching that by video. And then the third track will be the teaching team. We'll be doing Bible teaching, but specifically our first series is going to be on the, the gnarly questions, the tough questions, the hard questions. Is Scripture reliable? Has science disproven God? The kind of things that we're doing. So, everybody got this? On the 15th at 9.15, on the 15th at 9.15, I'm not even going to tell you when the service starts, so you have to come at 9.15 so you won't miss the service, okay? But, but right now, we're going to do something together. I, I, I prayed, Lord, how, how to end this? And of course, always, if, if God's really moving in you right now, you can feel free. Our altars are always open in the response. But right now, I want us to do something together that's a powerful faith builder. Stand with me. <clears throat> we're going to sing the Apostles' Creed. And as we do this, and it's, a, it's an amazing render, render, rendering of it. You probably know it from Hillsong. If you haven't sung it before, it, it picks up so easily, and it is just awesome. I, 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 no matter where you find your faith today, I want you to declare the truth. So you can speak reality into existence because the Word is creative, and the Word with the Spirit of God does miracles. So speak the truth. Declare the truth that has rung out through the centuries. Allow the Lord to speak the words of faith in you and through you and through you to your neighbor. Declare the faith of millions that have gone before us and are now basking in the very presence of the Creator Himself. And as we sing, I believe in the Father. I believe in the Son. I believe in the Spirit. I believe in the resurrection. I believe He's coming back for me. As you sing those words, don't you dare let anybody else out sing you. Here we go. Pastor Josiah.